Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Eric Prather will join us to discuss the sleep prescription. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, sleep. We spend almost a third of our lives doing it, but really pay attention to good sleep health. Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Eric Prather. Dr. Prather is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of California at San Francisco. He co directs the Aging, Metabolism, and Emotion Centers there and is currently a licensed clinical psychologist where he helps patients improve their sleep using cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. He has penned the new book, The Sleep Prescription. Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. And he joins us today to discuss this very fascinating issue for a general audience. Dr. Prather, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me. Well, it is certainly our pleasure. It's certainly a great book you've put together here uh, for everybody who enjoys getting a good night's sleep. But here's why you decided to put the book together. Well, you know, I mean, I think a lot of it comes from the research that we do in our lab here and seeing the links between sleep and health, both physical health and mental health. But also, our clinic that we have, which treats people with insomnia, can only reach so many people. And it's become clear over time that there needs to be another way to kind of scale this information. And so I was really excited about the opportunity to talk about what we do in our clinic to try to improve the sleep of many, many more people than we could possibly treat. Do you think it's a problem uh, these days as sleeplessness or insomnia, has that increased in recent times? Well, I mean, I think we certainly noticed an uptick and and the data supports this during the pandemic was incredibly stressful time. It continues to be a stressful time for a lot of folks. And turns out that when people have a lot of stress in their lives, it can seep into our sleep. And so it's not surprising that there was an uptick. We'll say that for some people, their sleep improved, but that has a lot to do with remote work and less needing to commute. But overall, insomnia seems to be on the rise um, about 30% of people um, in the population report insomnia symptoms. So in the U.S. alone, that's, you know, almost 100 million. Is it just purely stress that's the major contributor to not being able to sleep? Or is it paying attention to good sleep practices? What do you think are the sources of the various ailments that people have regarding sleep? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that insomnia, certainly stress plays an important role. But also beyond that, it's really the way in which we approach sleep and sleep health. Oftentimes, sleep is the last thing on the list when the rest of the day is done. And that type of culture, that type of approach is really challenging for getting kind of sufficient amounts of sleep. Oftentimes, individuals try to treat themselves like they're a computer where they can just shut down after the day and just go to sleep. But there's, there's a transition that's needed. And so part of the things that we talk about in this book are the importance of investing in your sleep in the process because it actually pays dividends during the day so you can kind of be your best self. 
How much do we know about how much sleep we need, how important it is? There's almost a sense of pride from people saying, oh, I only need so and so many hours of sleep, but it's really important. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine recommends for adults to get at least seven hours of sleep to maintain optimal health. And a lot of that or that recommendation comes from a whole lot of research, primarily on large scale epidemiologic data where they find short sleep duration, getting fewer than the recommended seven hours seems to put people at risk for a whole host of age-related conditions from cardiovascular disease to type 2 diabetes to accruing evidence around the development of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. And so it seems like sleep is just one of those kind of critical pieces to our health that often don't get accounted for in our daily lives and how we plan out how to live. For those people who found themselves in this situation where they're having trouble sleeping, obviously one approach is drugs, but it's also behavioral. And your book goes in behavioral approach in terms of addressing this. Yeah, absolutely. So what we do in our clinic and, and what I tried to distill in, in this book are principles for cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is a behavioral approach that really tries to leverage kind of underlying biology of how we know sleep works, right? So we try to ensure that people have a strong circadian rhythm. So that is ensuring that people are waking up around the same time each day to help entrain their rhythm, but then also focusing on harnessing people, our homeostatic sleep drive, which is our biological need to sleep, and then ensuring ourselves in the right position to have a good night's sleep. So that's ensuring an adequate transition time, that's seeing our bedroom a shrine to sleep, and then really trying to manage our stress and our worry so that it doesn't seep into our night. All of these things in combination can help put people in their best case scenario for getting a good night's sleep. Now, our sleep varies from night to night, and it's expected that we're not going to have perfect nights each night. But if we set these principles in place and stick to them, it definitely puts us on a better path to more restorative and more predictable nights of sleep. What are the crucial factors then in terms of getting your body, your brain all trained correctly so that it follows a good sleep pattern? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that we always tell people and that I, that I always tell people is, you know, you really want to start with a standard wake up time. In this book, the idea is that a lot of times we focus on what are the last things that we can do right before we get in bed. But actually, what we can do to ensure a good night's sleep starts right when we wake up and then all the things that take place throughout the day. And so maintaining a standard wake time really helps set our internal clock. It also helps set the time in which our homeostatic sleep drive will begin accruing uh, sleepiness. But then there are all these things that we can do throughout the day. So from kind of stress management to ensuring that we're not kind of taking too many substances that can throw us off track for our sleep that night, that's like caffeine, alcohol too close to bed, things like that but also you know, ways that we might be able to revitalize ourselves when we do feel sleepy during the day. So maybe getting more exercise, maybe I talk about cold exposure as a way to kind of perk people up. And then the having this adequate wind down period is so critical. And then finally, ensuring that if you were worriers, having strategies to deal with that. So talk about worrying earlier in the day, actually scheduling time in which you can sit down and get those worries out so that they don't creep into the night. And if they do, you can tell yourself, look, I have this scheduled for the night. Then, then the final pieces are 
actually, if you do have difficulties falling asleep or staying asleep and your mind is really busy, you need to move that out of the bed. The bed is a shrine for sleep and it's a really critical environmental trigger to help bring on sleepiness. So not spending excess time in bed awake and moving yourself out of the bedroom, doing something quiet until you begin to feel sleepy again, and then returning actually helps retrain your brain to notice those sleepy cues that are critical for facilitating good sleep. Your book goes into all of these, and you have a seven-day prescription for going through it. Is, is it so that you focus on each of these little elements and implementing them one day at a time? Yeah, I mean, that is, that is absolutely the premise or the plan there. I like to think of it as a recipe versus a menu, right? They all kind of build on each other and it will work better if all the components are included. But I also think an important piece to keep in mind is this book is kind of the beginning, not the end, right? So it really does take practice and sticking to it to see the benefits, but all of the principles are really aligned with the type of treatment that you might get at our clinic. However, if it doesn't work for you, or it's, it's a little bit more severe than this book would address, definitely talk to your doctor, definitely seek out a behavioral sleep medicine clinic where you can get kind of either group or individual therapy to ensure that you're kind of getting the sleep that you need. What do you find are the typical sticking points that people have in terms of retraining their brain for good sleep? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, yeah, so I was mentioning that people have really active minds in the middle of the night, right? It turns out that brain doesn't ever just populate that space with like lots of positive things. It's always kind of these negative things or worries, ruminations, things we wish we had done differently. And our mind can be really busy. And so, as I said, kind of one of the ways in which we can retrain that is to remove yourself from the situation. And that's, that's really hard. People don't like getting out of bed. They have these notions that, well, that's just decreasing the chances that I'm going to fall asleep even more. But it turns out that, you know, that's, it's really based on this idea that the more time you spend in bed with your mind racing with these thoughts of worries about not sleeping, things of that sort, it's actually fracturing the relationship with the bed and making it harder in the future for getting sound sleep. And so that really convincing people to do that and get out of bed. And then the question is like, what do you do? Certainly not turn all, all the lights on and fire up your computer since you're awake to do email. It's actually really thinking, you know, being intentional about doing things that help you wind down you know, that's a little bit of a personal thing. For some people, it's reading. For some people, it's listening to music. For some people, it's just kind of watching old television that they've seen before. But the idea is to really begin to calm the brain to allow you to get back to sleep. Some people really benefit from listening to sleep podcasts, these sleep casts that, that are available on the internet, or doing a meditation, doing diaphragmatic breathing that can increase your parasympathetic nervous system and allow you to relax. All of those things are kind of in the suite of tools that will allow you to get those sleepy cues back on track and get back in bed. And so finding the thing that works for you, but also ensuring that, you know, you're not doing it in the bed where your mind is racing and affecting your, your sleep environment. What does it get to the point where prescription medication can help in this process? Is there an interplay between prescription medication and the behavioral approach? Yeah, that, you know, that's a really great question. And we're sleep scientists trying to figure out for whom does that make the most sense? As a psychologist, I certainly come from the approach that like, let's try all of these behavioral things, see how far we can get, because we're learning more and more about the potential risks of chronic use of these sleep aids. Now, for acute use, you know, that, that's really what they're kind of developed for is just to kind of treat an acute problem. The challenge is that for many, 
they become kind of psychologically dependent on these medications, which further undermines someone's self-efficacy about their ability to sleep. And so it's, it's a delicate balance. I will say that in some cases, if someone does go through our clinic and does the full suite of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, you know, there's a small percentage that do end up moving on to medications and, you know, that, and they're able to get the sleep they need. And so that's great. However, come with many more risks than is the case for what we do behaviorally. As part of the behavioral, the lifestyle that you have, active during the day, eating right, that also helps setting you up for a good night's sleep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we've learned over the course of the last several decades with respect to the sleep science is that sleep is now a key pillar for health, but it's next to several other key pillars, right, including nutrition and physical activity. And so the thought is that they probably work synergistically with one another, and it's definitely a bi-directional relationship, right? When you don't get enough sleep, people tend to make poor nutritional choices. Like we crave those high fat, high sugar foods. We're less likely to want to do that exercise routine. And so I focus on treating the sleep with the goal of allowing people to make better health choices during their day. But certainly when people get exercise and when they're eating better, that may in fact also make it easier for them to sleep. And so they work as a package to ultimately improve our health and likely our longevity. What's been the most surprising thing to you in terms of what you've discovered about sleep? Yeah. You know, I think a lot of the work that got me into this was in the, is in the context of sleep in the immune system. And so we did a study some time ago now where we brought people into the laboratory and first we had measured their sleep out in the world using kind of like a research grade Fitbit called wrist actigraphy. And then, and so we measured their sleep and got, you know, how much they slept on average. Then we brought them into the laboratory and then exposed them to live rhinovirus, the virus that causes the common cold. And then we, we quarantined them and we tried to see if the amount of sleep that people get in general predicts who in fact ends up getting sick. And it wasn't just by self-report symptoms, we looked at kind of objective measures, like was the viral rep virus replicating? So it's so an estimate of an infection. And then uh, how much mucus were they producing? And how much nasal congestion did people have by kind of objective measures that we use in the laboratory? And what we found was that kind of like everyone had heard from their grandmother, that people who got less sleep we're much more likely to get sick, despite the fact that everybody got exposed to the same virus at the same quantity. And so, in fact, it was people who got fewer than six hours of sleep on average were about four times more likely to get sick compared to people who slept more than seven hours. And so I think that really, really underscored the clear impact that sleep can have on our health in the context of infectious illness. And of course, like as we've kind of moved through this COVID pandemic, it's become even more salient to me. And we continue to try to chip away at the role that sleep plays in the context of, of viruses and general our health. People picking up the book, what would you like them to really take home regarding the sleep prescription? Yeah, like to think of this book has a message of hope that there is, you know, a lot of times when I meet people that have insomnia and, you know, my, I have clinic today, I mean, it'll, it'll be filled with, with these sorts of things, is this distress and this feeling that they're chasing sleep, right? That it's like out of their reach and so unpredictable. And this book is really 
trying to get across the message that there is hope for this and that we're kind of built to sleep. Sleep is deep in our DNA. Our body knows how to do it. And oftentimes it's our behaviors that are kind of getting in the way. And so if we can get those things back on track, it'll allow sleep to come to us. I always say that sleep is something that no one ever thinks how it works until it stops working. And then we become hyper-focused on trying to make it happen. But sleep isn't something that we make happen. It's something we allow that comes to us that kind of washes over us. And so this book is ideally helps lay out the steps to allow that to happen and that you know sleep is attainable. And I hope that people pick up the book and, and find those tools helpful. We were just talking with Dr. Eric Prather, the new book, The Sleep Prescription, Seven Days to Unlocking Your Best Rest. Dr. Prather, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.